Live from the next cast, Anthropological Institute. Let us take you down, because we're going to the UK to talk Beatlemaniacs. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Fanthropological, the podcast that brings the fans I view to you. And uh, if you're a fan of this podcast, your fans I view is now us because we are streaming for the first time on Twitch uh, as we start season four. And uh, we start a trip around the world as uh, we've landed in the UK. While we're here, uh, we are going to talk about probably one of the most famous fandoms ever to afflict the UK, Beatlemania. <laughs> and here with me to do that are my two best friends, Nick T., uh, I'm excited and terrified. I'm just calling it excitified. <laughs> and Nick Z. Um, I've got my mop top wig on and uh, my George Harrison uh, mask. I'm uh, ready to go. <laughs> and uh, and joining us, uh, special guest friend to talk about the Beatles episode, is host of the Reality Bomb podcast and Beatle Maniac, Graham Burke. Hello, I am uh, terrified and excited, so I guess I'm terrified. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I mean, especially considering the circumstances. Yeah, you kind of picked the busiest year of the Doctor Who year. To... Yeah, um, <laughs> since I can't remember when this will be produced compared to when we recorded it, uh, today is the day after um, the new Doctor was announced, and it was a doozy. But I'm not going to talk <laughs> about it because you should listen to Graham's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but we are talking about something very timely, and that is the Beatles. Indeed. <laughs> oh, man. Timely or timeless? I mean, that's the argument, uh... right? <laughs> Presumably there's still some interest in the Beatles. Well, I mean, that that is part of, I guess, what we will find out today. I'm going to start us off with a little bit of information about the Beatles, for those who are not in the know, with our Fandom Facts. Fandom Facts the Beatles were an English rock band formed in Liverpool in 1960, consisting of four members, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. They are widely regarded as the foremost and most influential act of the rock era. Though they broke up in 1970, the individual members enjoyed successful musical careers on their own, um, some more than others and some for greater lengths than others. Um, there are only two remaining members of the Beatles, of course, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. There was a quote that I had that was actually really indicative of how influential they were, and that is, uh, this is from the Wikipedia page, the Beatles are the best-selling band in history with estimated sales of over 800 million physical and digital albums worldwide. They have had more number one albums on the British charts and sold more singles in the UK than any other act. They are also the best-selling music artists in the United States with 178 million certified units. That is a lot. Wow. It is the most. It is the most. Um, of interest to me, when I was digging into the origins, uh, the fandom started to take off in about 1963, so three years after they had formed as a band, and continued past uh, the group's breakup in 1970, which is interesting because there were no public performances since 1966. The fandom was most active between 1960 and 1970. Um, I usually take a look at Google Trends data to see how things are going with the fandom. Uh, when I searched for the Beatles and Beatlemania, I mean, Beatlemania was not super popular 
my, by comparison. My guess is oh nine oh nine oh nine has a spike. Uh, it did. Yeah. Uh, interest in the Beatles has generally been on the decline, but there was a spike in September 2009 uh, when remastered versions of their albums were re-released, and again in February 2014 with The Night That Changed America, a Grammy salute to the Beatles. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. The only other interesting thing as there's, I'm sure, many facts about the Beatles, uh, was that I found Archive of Our Own has over 1,200 fanfics related to the Beatles. It's not bad. I think that's more than some of the other things that, we've covered. That's only, the, that's only the ones that were typed on a computer. Also true. <laughs> yeah. There's another intervening, yeah. uh, I don't know, 30 years. The drawerfic, as it used to be called, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, actually. Did anybody come across any mention of any zines or uh Graham, did you do you know of any Beatles fan zines? I th- I think there were because I mean, it was a much uh it was a much more official network, I think. Uh there was obviously an official fan club that was uh sponsored by the record label, and I think there were national fan clubs and then local fan groups uh so and they all of course had their own little fan letters and stuff like that so it was very it's a very different kind of thing than the sort of zine culture we know but you know i mean zine culture as we kind of know it is more something that came from science fiction fandom and then sort of crossed into other genres Uh, so i I think it was much more it was more of a a a newsletter culture if you will Mm -hmm. yeah it's more receiving than it was creating Yes, I think so. Hmm. I mean, I think they created... You watch any documentary about the Beatles, there's some poor uh, screaming 15-year-old girl waving some bit of fan art she did. Oh, yes. Of the yeah. Fab Four. So, I mean, yes, I think there was obviously a, a fan culture, as as we would now mm-hmm. term it. But I don't think it was as uh, as organized, perhaps, as, as we sort of look upon it now. Or organized differently, yeah, rather. Think... More, or, more top-down, yeah. I would say. Yeah. I think that's probably as good a place as any to get into the why of Beatles fans, of uh, Beatle maniacs, unless... Just, just, one, oh, just one more thing, T. I have a couple of fan facts of my own. Oh, perfect. What? Love it. <laughs> Here are things that people claim the Beatles invented. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, have, <laughs> I did not see that. Uh, heavy metal, psych rock, prog, music videos, rock, MTV, grunge, pop music. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All true. <laughs> you can certainly I have I have someone with, with even more first band to use a harmonica. First band to write a song with recognizable artistic merit. Some of these <laughs> I, some of those some of, some of those become increasingly more and more debatable as we go on. Um harmonica. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I think I think there's a, a healthy R and B tradition that preceded the Beatles where I think yeah. you can find harmonica quite easily. But uh, <laughs> the Beatles, as we move into the why. Why? The Beatles are a great one to point to as, as like a linchpin or milestone or like keystone of like basically all the music that, that followed it. It's like attributing quotes to Oscar Wilde. <laughs> right? <laughs> Everything seems a little more, a little more uh, elegant when it's attributed to Oscar Wilde. So I think... Like to point to little, little tiny bits in the in the Beatles' different songs and say, "Look, that's where grunge started." You know, <laughs> "Ticket to Ride," 
and, uh, and and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it. I mean, it's a vastly it's a vastly influential band, and I think the reason why it's currently uh, in the top twenty albums uh, of 2017 for an album that was released 50 years ago last month is precisely because the band as a phenomenon was, I think, two things. One, I think they just sort of. Uh, they were first a good pop band that just sort of hit the American zeitgeist at precisely the right moment. And I think it rocketed into superstardom in a way that that you just can't, that I just is completely unthinkable now. Their first or second album that was released in the U.S. was in the charts for like something like 57 weeks or something like that. It was just ridiculous. And, and so there's that. And I think what happened with the band was, is that it could have been, you know, in any other band, it would have kind of defined the British invasion sound, kind of done some good albums and and petered out and, you know, broken up, reformed new bands and become a nostalgic act that comes back every five or ten years ago, like Paul Revere and the Raiders. But what it did differently was, I think, it became more and more interested in making music. It, it was a band made up of hardcore music nerds <laughs> who really liked the process of making music and really enjoyed it and then made that kind of artistic endeavor the, the their raison d'etre rather than just producing pop ditties and they just sort of said that we're not we're not we're not touring anymore and instead put all the kind of energy that they were putting into you know year mind-numbing year-long tours of all over the world to actually producing rubber soul revolvers sergeant pepper etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think that sort of begins the sort of second phase so it's 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 a pop phenomenon that became kind of a music icon so it's it's this bizarre kind of switch between the two and and you will find people who are fans of the beatles at various points you will find people who are i would say rubber soul fans of the beatles mm-hmm. who sort of love that sort of 1965 1966 kind of sound that they had and then you have the sort of uh sergeant pepper white album kind of fans or, or you know or a really late period kind of uh, abbey road fan but that's the thing about them is that they are for a band that really, when you think about it, only existed for eight years as an actual recording pop band. I mean, they'd been in Hamburg and stuff like that for years before years before that, but they were only on the scene between 62 and 70. So that's eight years. And for eight years, they did all those things and they regularly invented themselves almost like clockwork, um, you know, and, and like every two or three years or so, they just do a a soft rebooting of what they did. And that rebooting was just increasingly better. So yeah, that's the Beatles phenomenon in a nutshell. Yeah. They, they found out like, especially to say that in retrospect, 13 albums in eight years. Yeah. Wow. They also pretty much, I think invented the pop album as we knew it up until I'd say 1965 or so the album existed as sort of a place to collect your singles and <laughs> then deep cuts and, and B sides and stuff like that and put it onto two wax sides and ship it out to the kiddos to listen to. And they changed that to uh, to an actual artistic piece in and of itself that were, you know, you listen to, I'd say rubber soul onward. It pretty much becomes the album is the thing. Each of the tracks has been deliberately chosen one to follow the other. And you get to Sgt. Pepper and they, and the evolution is complete. The album is a, is a gatefold cover. It has a gorgeous pop cart design. It's actually got the lyrics in it. And each song on the album has a different color or palette of, of sounds that, so it all, it all has a very different build one to the other. And it, and it sort of completely changed the kind of shape of how we received what pop music was. I mean, Sgt. Pepper wasn't the first concept album, but I would say it, it perfected the idea of it. Mm-hmm. Wow. And like, as, as you were saying, there's such 
uh, music nerds. Yeah. Right. They just kept on, kept on, kept on inventing. They were, they were, I haven't cited the only, the only band to be driven away from touring by their fans. <laughs> Pretty much, actually. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Like, they released, I don't know, three albums in 1964, I think. Like, something like, like that. Yeah. Very, very quickly. But, like, they never stopped touring. Yeah. In that time, they, they toured for, like, I don't know, two or three years straight. Pretty much. And they could not hear themselves and they were going insane because of it. And they, <laughs> and they just, they just quit. And then when you quit, you don't have to worry about live performance. You don't have to worry about replicating what you've played in the studio live. So you can add whatever you want. Yeah. That's precisely it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I think that's all well and good to, to say, you know, they were music nerds and, and, you know, they, they kind of did all this influential work and, and, uh, early work that was emulated by other bands later but i don't know that that tells the full story of of the fans because i'm sure even today there are people who are constantly you know working with different genres and and um kind of blending them and creating new things but not having the same success as the beatles it's got to be more than just the right time i know that's a big factor in a lot of things but it can't just be timing well i I think it was timing at first okay I i don't think it was timing I think by about 1965, it wasn't timing. It was just they became that good. Uh, but I think you get through the initial success of uh, Meet the with the Beatles and and their second album and, and Hard Day's Night and 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 Beatles for Sale and and I, I think that's the right place, at the right time. And and they were the right place, at the right time in Britain, but they were the right place, at the right time in America. And that just gave them a whole new level. I think after that point, I always sort of say that uh, that uh, Beatles for Sale is the, in, in the 1964 album is that they did after Hard Day's Night is the soft reboot of the Beatles because suddenly their songs like uh, All Follow the Sun, which use folk tradition and and start experimenting with genre and start doing all sorts of interesting things, and you can sort of see that you know. And then the next album is supposed to be a film adaptation. It's it's help, but they then do Yesterday on it. And it just becomes a series of ever-increasing evolutionary leaps. And I think that's where it, 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 the paradigm shift happens. It, it's sort of between 64 and 65, and then it's it's a totally different band. In terms of timing, it's such that when they start hitting their stride with, like, you know, like English beat pop songs, like I wanna, She Loves You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, um, we had the, the boomer generation just, you know, in their youth. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of them. And the predominant culture was youth culture instead of, you know, what their what their parents had been. I found an article here called Beatlemania, a sexually defiant consumer subculture that talks about how I was seen at the time for the for the girls that were that were, you know, screaming at the Beatles, went to see them and like obsessed with them, joined the fan club, had magazines. It was a, it was a conformity that overruled adult mores and adult laws. <laughs> wow. Everyone was focused on this, so you were focused on this too. And then it created a culture where you could talk about, oh, what do you think George eats for breakfast? <laughs> or, you know, is Paul really the cute one? And all that. And then, like, you get people talking in common about that, and then their, their friends are talking about that, and they want to be part of it too, and it spread. There were other bands like the Beatles at the time of the Beatles, but they just, mm, at the right time, maybe the Song Rising was, was, like, slightly better than some of the other bands, but they had the, the look as well. Ringo had to shave his mustache to join the Beatles. <laughs> one of the stories that I had come across was a uh, was about one Marsha Albert, a Beatles fan stateside, before they had really come over to the states because she had seen this CBS uh, interview 
of the Beatles and heard, I think it was, uh, I want to hold your hand and, um, was just like so taken with it that she called up her local DJ and said, you know, you've got to play some Beatles. It's, it's just the greatest thing ever. So this DJ, you know, pulled some strings, used their connections and, uh, wound up getting the single of, I want to hold your hand before there were like really any solid plans to release it stateside and then played it which angered the record companies, but everybody loved it who was hearing it. And it spread from that station to other stations because of the popularity. And the record company ultimately was just like, yeah, well, I guess we'll just use this as free publicity and release it finally. So there's like a sort of priming of the pump. Yeah. And of course, the Beatles had already released an album in Canada. They had been able to release it in the States. Really? Actually, when they when they did when they first performed in New York at the Ed Sullivan Show, they actually there was no organized Beatles fan club in 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 the U.S. at the time. So they actually contacted the Beatles fan club in Canada. Hmm. Uh, it's so funny because I remember when I was in high school, I was researching the history of my of my high school, and it was which was built in 1962. And so I remember reading articles from like the end of 1963 about oh, there's this new band called the Beatles. And, <laughs> And how it was sort of taking kids in Oakville, Ontario by storm. And, and it was, it was just this fascinating. And I was like thinking, wow, this is like four months out from when, you know, when they'd appear on Ed Sullivan and they had already sort of gotten hold of, of, of kids in Canada. So it, it's an interesting kind of effect. Yeah. And one you don't really hear that much about because normally when you, when you hear about the Beatles outside of the UK, it's always their impact yeah. in the States and America. No, and and it, let's face it. I mean, the Beatles episode of the Ed Sullivan Show was one of the iconic moments of '60s television. And oh yeah, people forget that it was a complete variety show that didn't just have the Beatles. It had a person doing close close magic uh, immediately following them, and and, and they were all. And it's just so bizarre watching that watching that whole Ed Sullivan show. They had a they had this comedy act that just bombed because yeah. of course the whole audience was teenage kids yep. who were not really interested in the comic stylings of of a wannabe may and uh <laughs> 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 elaine may and uh, i forget the, yeah but that's that's what happened i mean it was just it was just so incredible and, and sullivan had the canniness to the you know immediately get on a train and follow them to florida so they could record the next week and and sort of get that level of ratings uh it, it was staggering it's it's one of those h-bombs and I think the fandom sort of just exploded so fast. And it was in a day when there was no, I would say, the kind of licensing you could do, what you could do with, uh, you know, with, with creating commodities was not quite so tightly licensed. So mm -hmm. it was, it, it had, you could just basically slap Beatles on any of it <laughs> and, and pretty much, pretty much sell it. Uh, so yeah, it was, it's, it's really fascinating to me because, uh, um, Growing up in Canada, of course, I knew that Paul has on his the, his sleeve of yes. his band uniform an Ontario Provincial Police uh, uh, badge, and I and I uh, what? Uh, it's, uh, yep. Yep. yep, you look at yep, look at his okay. left sleeve. He's got an OPP emblem on his on his sleeve, oh. and this always like, what the hell was he doing with this? And it turned out that when they first toured Canada in '64, they apparently had, I think it was you know, a detachment of OPP officers sort of sort of basically bodyguarding and you know trying to keep <laughs> screaming fans from tearing them apart and one of i think one of them gave all of them actually an opp emblem on their last date um in canada and they took it away and 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 you can see paul periodically like performing with different police badges on his concert outfits at, at various points so it's obvious that he kept them and collected them and yeah so when it came time to go 
do the Sgt. Pepper outfit, he he had he had them put the OPP badge on it. Um, and and for me, that's kind of like this. It's not because of the fans, but it's certainly this. It, it, it's a part and parcel of that crazy culture in 1964, where they just exploded. Um, I was born in 1969, so I never saw it. But you watch the footage of them at any airport or train station; yeah. it is mind blowing. I mean, I remember when I lived in Britain, I I, I was around uh, for something with the Spice Girls. I can't remember what it was. And it was. <laughs> It was incredible. I just never seen that many people just to go go watch people get off a tour bus in my entire <laughs> life. But the Beatles were just that next level. It was just just staggering. So yeah. One thing that I thought was great in in that article that I was talking about, it they described it as a riot, but it's not for anything. Yeah. It's to be near the Beatles. <laughs> That's it. And there's a lot of a lot of citations in here that show like adults thought that, you know, they were like sick. Yeah. Like Beatle <laughs> Mania yeah. was an illness. And oh see I got some Yeah. Got some choice quotes here. You wanna go ahead, Z. Yep. I don't have a quote, but I, I do have a sort of a paraphrasing. Uh Paul Johnson wrote an article in the New Statesman when things were going down, when stuff was happening. I think it, I think it might have been from nineteen sixty four or sixty five. And uh he basically said all these Beatles fans you see screaming in the concerts on the tarmac like waiting for the tour bus they're the failures of their generation they're the idle and the dull and you know they just don't have anything else going for them so they're just freaking out about these beetles all right let's let, let's pile more on top of that before we move on <laughs> shall we okay so from the science newsletter oh there's more uh, february kidding. 1964 29th of february must have been a leap year <laughs> So this is an article in the Science Newsletter titled, Beatles' Reaction Puzzles Even Psychologists. (laughs) One unidentified psychologist offered a carefully phrased hygienic explanation. Adolescents are going through a strenuous period of emotional and physical growth, which leads to a need for expressiveness, especially in girls. Boys have sports as an outlet. Girls have only the screaming and swooning afforded by Beatlemania, which could be seen as a release of sexual energy. Wow. Wow. Hey, man. I'm not done. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> this is from the New York Times magazine uh, just a week before. Uh, it is probably no coincidence that the Beatles, who provoke the most violent response among teenagers, resemble in manner the witch doctors who put their spells in hundreds of shuffling and stamping natives. Wow, sexist oh. and racist. <laughs> yep. Some very well-dressed uh, witch doctors. <laughs> I just kept on like picturing these guys all looking like they belong in a New Yorker cartoon. It's just like, <laughs> these these people with pipes and walrus like mustaches yeah. and just sort of going glasses, short sleeve button up shirts, and ties, being like, "What do we? What what is this? What do we do? <laughs> this makes no sense." And so I think that was encouraging to the young fans. Oh, certainly, probably they're like, "Yeah, this is our thing." Mm-hmm. You don't get it. <laughs> You're trying to analyze it and completely don't understand. I forget who said it because it was obviously some pop historian who was much better than I. But I think I think it was said that you know the 1950s the was was the time when the concept of the teenager finally actually took hold as its own independent concept because you know mm. until that point you're either a child or you're an adult mm. and you know this idea of an independent time was just unheard of and I think it took kind of post-war culture to actually sort of make that an actual thing and i think the genius of what i think happened in music around about the time of the beatles was that they figured out how to commodify it 
um, in ways that they hadn't. They discovered that, you know, they could, for example, have giant concerts in, in massive, massive baseball stadiums. And just, even if they're playing it over a PA system, which is what they did for, for the Shea Stadium <laughs> concert in, in 1965. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, you know, you could have like 60,000 screaming fans all willing to pay like, you know, seven bucks a pop when seven bucks mattered something or $20 for a, for, for a more expensive seat when 20 bucks mattered something. So on the one hand, you have this these sort of, you know, disapproving people from a New Yorker cartoon. But on the other hand, you have you have a culture that is making money hand over fist over it. <laughs> the people making money aren't the Beatles. The people who are, are making the money are concert promoters. They're the record companies um, and who basically saw touring as basically what you did to sell the album. Uh, so you listen to the Shea Stadium concert, it's all about plugging the album. They, the, the Beatles between song banter uh, before they get bored with the fact that no one can hear them and they just start making up words and stuff. <laughs> is basically saying, well, this is on Beatles 6, which is the American title for uh, a, sort of basically a compilation album of, of B-sides and stuff. And so they're just naming off albums that they didn't even record, but they're American albums that Capitol produced. And, you know, their job is to promote that. And so, yeah, so I think what you have is is not the invention of the teenager, but the commodification of the teenager. And the teenager has suddenly a potential um, economic value that that is there. Mm-hmm. And so, but by the end of the 60s, you get to this point where the, that commodification turns on its head because the teenager is a smart species and is able to start questioning, well, why am I being sold these bill of goods and why do I need to be sold anything? And, and I think, you know, and then you have the counterculture happening and that changes the course of everything in its own way. So, yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I was reading an article in The Guardian, um, which was entitled Beatlemania, The Screamers and Other Tales of Fandom. And it talks about um, not only the the whole post-World War II baby boom effect and there being more youths, but it talks about how people kind of aligned around the idea of the Beatles as a community. And so that's like the precursor to that commodification. Now that you have children, I guess, who see themselves not as children, but teenagers, and they sort of rally around that idea of being their own group that are not adults, that are not children. You have people who are no longer isolated by being kids you have people who are no longer isolated by their class they're all starting to unify around this idea of being a teenager and then that starts to build the community that that later gets uh, used in other ways yeah i think that's a, i think that's a very accurate assessment yeah i think i think they sort of built their own sort of sense of community around the beatles and it's very interesting to me because when the beatles decided to become more artistic it's interesting to me how many fans kind of just kind of went, eh, whatever. Um, I'm just going to move on to something else. And we don't talk about that very much because, frankly, the Beatles still sold bucket loads of albums and were still the dominant force in the 1960s. But my wife was a kid in the 1960s. And she said to me, I, there's a point where, you know, they just started doing albums that were more arty. And I just, I just lost interest in them. <laughs> <laughs> because, which is very funny. I, I, and I, I remember my grade nine English teacher, uh, she, uh, she was a huge fan of the Beatles and she was on my Beatles podcast and we were talking about oh, how wow. she was, she was like 12 years old when Beatles for sale came out in 1964. And she was, and she said she would, you know, they all had their pictures of, you know, Paul or George or whatever, and, you know, in, in their scrapbooks. But she also, you know, described to me that, you know, she bought like John Lennon's, uh, book of poetry is Spaniard works well you know when she was allowed to buy one book in the bookshop in the airport before she went on a plane ride to Canada and she bought it of course because it was John Lennon and then read it and went uh, what the is this <laughs> I found that in a used bookstore once and it was very 
Very confusing. Very, very John Lennon, but like... It's very John Lennon. It is. Yeah. It is. Just to add to your point about the commodification of the teenager, uh, from, from the same article. In one city, someone got a hold of the hotel pillowcases that had purportedly been used by the Beatles, cut them into 160,000 tiny squares, <laughs> mounted them on certificates, and sold them for a dollar apiece. Oh, wow. Yep. yep. <laughs> Yep. They even included that in one of the Beatles documentaries I've seen. Oh, yeah, it's just it's just amazing. I mean, if you're looking for a, a great documentary about the sort of fan culture that sprang up around the Beatles, uh, you really can't beat the very recently uh, uh, made uh, documentary by uh, Ron Howard, uh, Eight Days a Week, which is all about their touring years, and it follows them, especially in their American touring years. And if you get the if you get the the Blu-ray or the DVD, there's a whole whole extra specifically about fans who you know there is this uh person whose friend just happened to be the daughter of the british ambassador um in washington uh, as you do and she got invited because there was these there's this band called the beatles going to be at the embassy after their washington dc concert in, in february 64 and would she would she want to come <laughs> to sort of fill the place and she even shows her photograph of her with paul it's 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 so great and and you have you have these individual fans who were basically kind of i think one of them was the one you mentioned earlier who sort of got i want to hold your hand played on on Mm -hmm. radio and and she was kind of known as the closest thing to an american fan of the beatles and so she was sort of called by cbs and said hey do you want to do you want seats for this and you know she had to go convince her mom to basically (laughs) circle the block outside the ed sullivan's theater to go (laughs) (laughs) while she while she watched the beatles and screwed her head off so so you know there's lots of stories like that it's a really fun kind of uh compilation of things like that uh you know it even has famous fans like sigourney weaver who basically went to the uh hollywood bowl show and you know when she was young and and whoopi goldberg who got to go to the shea stadium concert she was a huge fan and one of the Mm. one of the things that the uh, the documentary goes into is is how they insisted that their concerts in the south be integrated as so they so they they refused to let segregation happen at their concerts they actually found uh, African-American teenagers at the time who had basically gone to the concert and got to sit where they like. And it was just this kind of radical thing. And it just came from basically Paul and John just saying on, on a radio interview, that's that's appalling. We would never do that in Britain. And we certainly don't want our venues to be to be segregated. And so it was really, really quite a powerful thing. Because it's a, it's a small kind of intersection, I think, between the kind of the 60s as the iconic experience and 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 the 60s as as what it was like to go live through the just society era of uh uh johnson era so it's this sort of weird intersection between the two it's it's funny that you mentioned Whoopi goldberg because i was about to say that's the second time that she's come up on the show the first time being i think the first episode when we were talking about star trek yeah yeah <laughs> which is again start like you're just seeing the transition from what the 60s into the 70s yeah, she seemed to have hovered around those those cultural movements quite well, actually. I mean, she was a huge fan of Star Trek too, so and and a huge fan of Yahura, I remember, and and she had all sorts of stories about watching the original series, and it's an it's amazing kind of uh, it's an amazing kind of time in in some ways. In other ways, it really sucked, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like now, actually. But there, yeah. well, <laughs> different, but yeah, there's yeah, there's parallels. Yeah. Mm. Uh, in terms of trying to uh, get these girls back to uh, living uh, saner lives, there's a group of Los Angeles girls called the Beatles Saniacs, Saniacs? <laughs> offering group therapy for those living near active chapters and withdrawal literature for those going alone at far-flung outposts. Ooh. Oh, my. 
Among the rules for recovery were do not mention the word beetles in brackets or beetles like the insect. Do not mention the word England. Do not speak with an English accent and do not speak English. Okay. That's just so that's just that's just so adorable. I can't even begin to say how adorable I find that. That's what I love about music fan culture of the 60s. It's just full of cute little ideas like that. It's just so funny. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> when i started the research for this week i was like oh is sexism gonna be another big topic of this week's discussion and i mean kind of but then when i reflected more on some of the things that you were saying graham i'm like right because you have the doubly compounding issue of like okay so it was the the 60s there was civil rights um you had people going from children to adulthood the emergence of the teenager and then on top of that you have any additional like misogyny that that may have previously existed so it now makes more sense in the context because i just kept finding all these references to like hormone crazed teenage girls and i'm like okay that seems <laughs> a little over the top it's so funny because i think the beatles have been kind of settled with this this idea that their music is timeless and in some ways it is but in some ways it isn't and i think we kind of forget that you know, we we don't. I, I I think for people of my generation, I, I I don't think we connect that this is a band that produced all its albums during the era of Mad Men. So <laughs> it, it is very much there. And, and you know, there is lots of let's just say for the sake of argument, problematic songs that they did that you know advocate you know for example violence against women, which I don't think you can sort of approve from a modern standpoint. Yeah. So I mean, their music is. In some ways, timeless. Yes, I do think there's a, there's a quality to the music that's timeless, but their music is very much also very much bound of the era it's it's from. And I think we're very good at sort of compartmentalizing the Beatles in certain ways. And I sometimes feel like we don't really connect that. You know, yeah, there was a lot of things going on that was just not cool. <laughs> um, going, you know, uh, going on in in the way Beatles wrote about women, in the way that the Beatles interacted with each other, in in the way that sort of teenage girls are sort of treated as just nothing, nothing more than screamers. Who, you know, it's a very different kind of culture. I think. I think the Beatles made themselves uh, timeless almost by force, because almost everything, you know, at least on a classic rock radio stage or something like that, has a piece of the Beatles in it. Yeah. So if you if you listen to the Beatles, you know you'd hear something familiar, even if you hadn't listened to them before. No, I, I think a part of it is just they they produce so much stuff. I mean, their output was, was prolific, even when they were in their more artistic period. They still produced albums practically every year, which is just you know, this idea of I'm going to go away for three years and then come out with an album was just unheard of in the 1960s. They actually had for a bunch of guys who by the 1960s were dealing with a variety of different drug habits, um, <laughs> had a, a phenomenal work ethic. <laughs> yeah. Most of them, except for Ringo, weren't working class. That's kind of a, a myth that sprung up because they're all from the provinces. But, uh, you know, in Liverpool, you know, they all grew up pretty much middle class, but they did have phenomenal work ethics. And, so they would basically go and, and make sure, you know, albums came out every year, make sure they did songs, make sure they did the public appearances, made sure they, you know, even when they weren't touring, they were keeping busy and still doing stuff as a band practically every year. There's none of this kind of, oh my God, there's this album. And, and, and they just, you know, suddenly made an album like four years later, like what the hell? And that would never happen with the Beatles. And in some ways I wish it kind of did because I think, I think that would have kept the band together. But I think part of the genius of them was that they were like a shark. They were always moving. Mm -hmm. All right, Graham, 
it's time to get real. Is Paul dead or not? Uh, yeah, no, he isn't. Uh, I almost said yes, but no, no, <laughs> no, he isn't. He isn't dead. It is a fascinating kind of little game, though. That that it's just it's just amazing <laughs> to me that all these things happened with the Beatles. That all these sort of crazy happen like that like you know the paul is dead rumor and and all kinds of weird games you could make out of songs they sang and if you play this backwards it says this and i remember as a teenager i was i, I was for a little while a fundamentalist christian and i remember i think somewhere in my at the start of my road to recovery i remember reading a book about the evils of rock music and and, and at one point i just my bullshit meter just really went off when they started analyzing sergeant peppers and saying oh on on paul's <laughs> sleeve he's wearing a badge that says opd which means officially pronounced dead i'm like Wait, no it means ontario provincial police it's an opp emblem <laughs> i'm from the province of ontario i i've seen that badge all over the place uh yeah so you know the paul's dead rumors i think one of the more creative uh, articulation of fan weirdness certainly this is great one of the greatest fan theories yes because it was about yes. real people it was real people but it was just <laughs> it was put together with the weirdest of circumstances paul is walking barefoot on the cover of yeah. <laughs> the paul double who is walking barefoot on the cover of, of uh, abbey road oh, so yes. therefore yes. that must yes it's like this bizarre kind of you know the kennedy could assassination conspiracies at least have some bearing in reality if you just really squint really hard it kind of lines up with a warren commission but these no way these are just you know oh, we take this random photograph we take this lyric we play our beatles album backwards on this track and it's just like are you kidding me this that's just too exhausting i mean who on earth would have the kind of time and energy to to create that level of conspiracy so that you can find it out the whole point of conspiracy is is that it's designed that not be found out. <laughs> it's not a conspiracy is not a cryptic crossword. <laughs> and I've always been fascinated by all these people who come up with these random conspiracies and say, well, this all proves it. I'm like, no, you're just, it, it's, that's not a conspiracy then. <laughs> I, I just was surprised before we did the episode. I was like, oh, let's, you know, one of the interesting things about fandoms is finding the quirky little bits about them. And one of the top results that come up was a bunch of fan yeah. theories. And yep, I'm like, yep, wow. Yep, that, is, that, is probably, yeah. that is probably the most interesting of them, for sure. All right, let's see here. Okay. So, fan of the week going all the way back is from uh, the Beatles anthology. This is John talking about when they were on tour in Australia. We were all shoving our dirty rags into a case when I heard a knock on the window. I thought it must have been one of the others mucking around, so I didn't take any notice, but the knocking kept on, so I went over to the balcony, and there was this lad who just looked like a typical Liverpool lad. I knew before he opened his mouth where he was from, because nobody else would be climbing up eight floors. This lad, Peter, walked in and said, Hello, Dare, and I said, Hello, Dare, and he told me how he climbed up the drain pipe from balcony to balcony. I gave him a drink because he deserved one, and took him around to see the others who were quite amazed. They thought I was joking when I told them. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, Peter is our I think fan I, of the week. I think I deserve <laughs> something. Uh, for sure. <laughs> That's loyalty and being Liverpudlian. Yeah. Bit of both. I'm glad uh, <laughs> glad John recognized the game. He's just like, yeah, okay. You've earned it. I mean, yeah. that's the thing about the Beatles, I think, I don't think it recognizes that they were actually as exhausted as they found touring they never had a problem with their fans no. they were always willing to talk to their fans um you know i mean the sad part of john lennon's life is that you know he literally died about 
to do what he thought was signing an autograph for a fan. You know, they've always had reasonable effect. Even even grumpy people like George had tremendous affection towards their fans and and were really quite supportive towards them. And I think that's 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 one of the things I've always kind of I always kind of liked the Beatles because they they never resented the fact that people liked their music. No, they resented being put on the treadmill of touring, but that was a very different thing. They didn't like the actual experience of touring and, and showing the records, but they didn't actually dislike the fans. Quite the opposite. All I could think of is, you know, you've hit it big when The Simpsons appeared at you, but that was much <laughs> later in a completely different cultural era. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like a recent phenomenon. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, they never appeared in the Flintstones, so I, yeah. Um, they made their own cartoon, which was... They made, the, they made their own cartoon. Um, but yes. Yeah. Well, I'm not talking about I mean, uh, <laughs> Yellow Submarine, by the way, which is actually really quite amazing. No? I'm talking about their 1965 ABC uh, Saturday morning cartoon. Mm-hmm. The Beatles, Ooh. which is really, really, really terrible. You can look it up on YouTube. I assure you, it, it, it's not worth more than a one-minute visit. <laughs> like the Beatles aren't in it oh, for man. one thing. Um, so, oh. uh, and unlike Yellow Submarine, where they actually like don't pick British actors to actually do their voices, there's only one British actor among them, and they're all Americans doing broad bad oh, British accents. No. And oh my god, it's just so terrible. It, it, the formula is Beatles come somewhere. Something funny allegedly happens, and then it it folds in nicely into a Beatles song. And I think my favorite example of that is <laughs> is the one where they decided to use "Cub Give Mir Deine Hand," which is the in fact a German language track that they did. It's the German version of "I Want to Hold Your Hand," and it's actually you know they come mm-hmm. to a Bavarian country. They're supposed to actually go get a flag for reasons that escape me, and they climb a mountain to go go get a flag. And being aided by a Saint Bernard, um, because apparently a French dog is what accompanies you when you're going up <laughs> the Bavarian Alps. And uh, they and at one point they're all about to slide, and they're trying to get the dog to actually grab their hand. And and they say, "No, it's no use, Paul. He doesn't." speak english he speaks only german and so he starts singing called give me dine hand so the dog to actually give him its hand or paw as the case may be and pull them up the mountain i've now explained to you probably the best and worst episode of the beatles cartoon show from 1965 <laughs> so you don't have to watch it so you're welcome there were four seasons yes there what? were you're you, someone has gone on the internet yes there were a lot of them wow. were kind of repackaged after a while but yes uh but yeah i i just can't imagine you know what is the <laughs> what what is the glass onion episode like i don't know um <laughs> it sounds like a similar writing process to across the universe. yeah uh, you know i just i just trying to imagine it um you know <laughs> all right graham if you had an open mic to the internet and you wanted to uh, plug anything in particular, oh, what what might that be? Well, gosh, okay, I will plug a couple of podcasts then. Uh, obviously, Ooh, right. I, I, yeah, why not? I, uh, I mm. of course, uh, with my friend Alex Kennard, who has been on your show, do a Doctor Who podcast called Reality Bomb, which is sort of like a current affairs magazine style show like you'd hear on NPR or CBC or Radio 4, depending on what country you live in. And it's a lot of fun, and I highly recommend it. You can listen to it at realitybombpodcast.com. And uh, last year, in 2016, my New Year's resolution was to go listen to all 12 studio albums by the Beatles, because they're, uh, if you fudge it a little and you make magical mystery turn an album, you have 12 albums and you have 12 months. And so I said, well, each month of the year, I will listen to a different Beatles album. And I said, that was great. 
And I enjoyed that, but I said, you know what? I think it'd be fun to do this as a podcast. So my friend Rob Jones, who does a music critic blog, which is fantastic, called The Delete Bin, he and I decided to go do a podcast where every month we would go listen to a Beatles album and we would discuss it. And we basically put out the call to people that I knew or people that I knew of and just said, hey, would you like to do an episode of this Beatles podcast I'm doing every month? And, and I was amazed. Uh, we did we did 16 episodes of it. So we covered all 12 albums and, and we did a bunch of bonus episodes actually more so i think it was more like 18 episodes actually so we did we did an episode with george martin we did an episode about their singles we, we did an episode about movies made about them about their animated cartoons it, it, we just covered everything and it was a lot of fun and a lot of friends got involved like alex did a couple of episodes with us and and other people did and it was a lot a lot of fun and you can listen to that podcast at uh, it's called a year with the beatles and you can hear that at a year with the beatles.podbean.com and uh, eventually, uh, probably in the fall, we will finally be debuting a new music podcast that I'm doing with uh, my friend Rob and uh, and Shannon Dohar. It's called Deeper Cuts. It's basically the premise of the show is that everyone has an album in their life that was important at some point in their life. Mm. It was like the soundtrack of a breakup or it was a, it was what they heard, listened to during a road trip or it was what they listened to just as they were kind of on the verge of starting college or something like that. Every, so we decided to take all those albums that uh, myself, uh, Rob Jones, and Shannon Dohar have, we basically picked three each, and we and we basically run through them and talk about them and talk about their impact on us, and then talk about how they hold up as pieces of music. And it's called Deeper Cuts. I believe the website is going to be deepercutspodcast.com, and it's it's hopefully coming out in October, I think. So we'll see. Oh, dang. Awesome. Those are all my plugs. I'm going to listen to that. <laughs> Graham, I have one... I have one final question for you. Okay. This, this right now, this very second, uh, what is your favorite Beatles song? What's my favorite Beatles song? Uh, actually, no, there's no hesitation. Actually, it's it's uh, it's the oh. long and winding road, which is which is hilarious because oh, because okay. I have so many friends who hate it, um, but <laughs> I, I absolutely adore it. Uh, it I, I adore it in all the Phil Spectrified glory of it, and uh, I Ooh. think it. I think Paul McCartney is mad at the fact that what Phil Spector did, what he did to it, because he just didn't come up with the idea himself. Because frankly, <laughs> Paul would actually do that kind of to a song. Uh, he would uh, if he just <laughs> if he just thought about it long enough. So yeah, no, I I, I adore that song. I'm also very fond of uh, of uh, a couple of John Lennon songs, uh, particularly in my life. I think so. Yeah, there's th th those would be my favorite. So yeah, awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate your time in this in this most busy season. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Graham. Uh, well, unfortunately, due to Graham's busy schedule, we were not able to ask him a question that occurred to me at like the last second. Yeah, what's that? The verdict. What? Oh, dang. That's right. In a row. In a row. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> oh, must, uh, must of the buttons. The, I'm pressing the beep boops and nothing's happening, everybody. Uh, so the verdict is the part of the show where we pass judgment on the fandom. Not necessarily literal <laughs> judgment, but it's it's more about... You know, kind of closing thoughts on the on the fandom. All right. Well, <clears throat> I mean, I I'm pretty sure that Graham would be like, yeah, I I think I I'm still a Beatles fan. Yeah. Um, in terms of Beatlemania, that obviously is not going to happen again. That was a one-time thing. Uh it was it was just just insane. Like they they couldn't hear themselves play. They literally couldn't. 
<laughs> because of people screaming. I can't think of another band that's ever happened to. It was like in Hard Day's Night when they were being chased. Those were not extras. <laughs> it's a group of screaming girls who wanted close to the Beatles and also Phil Collins. I'm still gonna have to look that clip up. I don't believe is, you, is, but you're not. You, I know you're not lying to me. I mean, can you identify a 15-year-old Phil Collins? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> not. I don't know if I could identify a whatever-year-old Phil Collins right now. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure there are YouTube videos that are like circles him and it's like this is Phil Collins. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but it's an incredible thing. Uh, they made a lot of good music. I don't know if it was clear during the bulk of the podcast, but I am a Beatles fan. Probably spent a year and a half to two years, last year of high school and first of university, listening to pretty much just the Beatles and absorbed every fact that I possibly could. I still remember all of the Paul is Dead clues. Uh, in Strawberry Fields Forever, at the end, he says, I buried Paul. Except <laughs> he didn't, because he's saying cranberry sauce. Uh, uh, of course. <laughs> if you place a polished butter knife in the middle of where it says uh, Beatles on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's, it spells out he, and then an arrow pointing towards Paul, dead. Can't be clearer than that. Nope. Of course. All right, so what I'm hearing is you're a big fan of the Beatles. I do like the Beatles. And Beatlemania is dead, unlike Paul. That's right. That's a good submission. I mean, they're not... Like, the Beatles music, you're never going to stop hearing. It invented classic rock. And, like, it's hard to say that they've earned their position when they are, like, put on the pedestal as gods. You know, first band to use a harmonica. (laughs) Or whatever, like... But, like, you know... They did a lot in a short amount of time, and they haven't entirely not earned the title of greatest band of all time. We didn't talk too much about current fandom, I guess. I did go looking. I did not find a lot of things, but that's a perfect way for me to transition into my verdict. That is, I I think that Beatles fandom is over. Not in that it's dead, just that it's, it's over. Every fandom has a time that it's relevant, and I think as time goes on, no one will ever forget that the Beatles were an amazing and influential band. But the amount of diehard fans, people collecting memorabilia, all of that, I think that will fade. And I would argue that maybe that time is is now-ish. There's just been so many different bands that have come up, not to the same scale as the Beatles, but just in terms of fandom hype that um, that is just not the same. Uh, we're running out of bands that are big. <laughs> also, yes. Like, straight up. Pre-internet bands. One, one Direction? No direction anymore. Ooh. Yeah, fine, yes. But that doesn't mean there won't be another one. But I, I think all the big stadium bands are like bands that have been around for a while now. Oh, big stadium, like, right, okay. Like, like U2 and Coldplay. Yeah. Coldplay is like the most recent example I can think of that would fill a stadium. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that. without getting into a whole other episode, I feel like <laughs> that is a lot of changes in how music and media is consumed today versus then. I mean... Drake doesn't have a problem filling a stadium. Kanye West doesn't have a problem filling a stadium. Beyonce right, doesn't. Right, right. But like I'm just <laughs> I'm talking about like rock bands. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's because because they're not a genius that speaks to a generation. <laughs> oh, Kanye 2020. Possibly the Rock 2020. Mm. Possibly Kid Kid Rock 2020. Mm. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> 
It's a dangerous precedent. Has been we set. are moving towards idiocracy, and that is a great time to ask Z. What is your verdict on uh, <laughs> Beatlemania fandom? I like the Beatles. The, Be- the Beatles have what I crave. They have... Uh, uh, I got electrolytes. Yeah, exactly. They have electrolytes. Thank you. <laughs> Rondo, they've got what plants crave. That was terrible. Terrible. <laughs> I'm off the show. That's it. That's it. But, uh, shamed and a man oh man seriously though i think beatlemania obviously is very much over one of the things that i didn't get to uh to bring up so much again because it's about the more modern sort of fandom is that it seems like as much as um people who are fans of the beatles will credit them with starting everything like recording harmonicas in songs or whatever it's kind of getting to the point now where it's reversing at least in people who discover the Beatles and you know sort of become interested in them uh even now as teenagers because they were the genesis of so many different things um or at least were the genesis of a few major things when you listen to music now from artists that have been influenced by the Beatles either directly or indirectly there's enough of like the Beatles DNA, it seems, still in modern music that people who, you know, when they're kids, they grow up on pop, whatever's on the radio, whatever's, whatever everybody's talking about. Once they discover the Beatles, it seems like they click because there's enough familiar stuff in there. But then it's also like the, the OG, if you will. And so there's there's a little bit of, of newness mixed in with that familiarity because the Beatles were doing stuff for the first time. And as a result, they were doing it kind of roughly. You know, it still had the, the hard edges that weren't quite smoothed down, um, as would be the case with later artists who, you know, took things like... like um, I forget what the song was. But for one of, one of the songs, they had, like, engineers standing in different parts of the studio doing stuff with like the tapes and like they would have them record at different times or something it was you know all the all the bizarro tricks you had to pull on uh, analog tape to make it sound like to create bizarre sounds and warping and that kind of thing you know people can do that so much more easily now and they they do do it to a greater effect i would say as far as beetle fandom today i think it's still a thing but it's probably about as big as so many other music fandoms that it, were bigger in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then have sort of fallen off. One of the things that I was really reminded of was Kiss, actually. Um, I don't think the Beatles were maybe as brand conscious, so to speak, or... They had people doing that for them. ...actively interested in manipulating the brand, as say Kiss was, but at one point I did kind of wonder um, if the Beatles could be continued in the same way that uh, Gene Simmons has said Kiss could be continued if you just hired some actors to or well, musicians, to cover the different characters and just keep the thing going. Maybe they already did that. What? Bam. No. Maybe oh, the government did do that. No. And through a... We're not. No. Ooh, through, a, through a campaign of soft power and drugs in the water supply, they've dosed a whole generation and ruined the world. You know what I've learned from this, Z? What? What's that? I've learned, I've learned two things. Mm-hmm. One, I need a gavel. Okay. And two, we need to keep this short. <laughs> Don't bring up news. 
always terrible at conclusions. <laughs> it's like I've just written a mini essay where this essay ends. Hey man, every every ending is just a new beginning. Oh god. <laughs> that long and winding road is going to take you to a little thoroughfare, but then there's another long and winding road after that. Whew. All right. Well, speaking of long and winding roads, it sounds like we have a. We almost to... got there. Yeah. Whew. I'm for Beatles. Yeah. Beatles are good. <sighs> Beatles good. Yeah. If you're listening to us on iTunes, please go ahead and uh, hit the subscribe button so so hot new fanthropological tracks are delivered straight to you every Friday, covering a new fandom. Or uh, give us a rating and review. Uh, which really help other people see us and deliver hot tracks to the people of the world. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at the Nixcast and twitch.tv slash the Nixcast, which you are possibly watching us on right now. Every Monday night at 8 o'clock. You can watch us record in all our uh, unedited glory. Mm-hmm. I'd say things have gone well this week. I would say so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you enjoy watching all the different content that we produce, whether it be um, our Let's Plays, whether it be our convention coverage, like when we went to the Sailor Moon Celebration or to YetiCon. If you enjoy watching us make a fool of ourselves during the live podcast, which I don't think we did too much of this week, but hey, it happens, you can become a patron of the NextCast at patreon.com slash the NextCast. Even as little as a dollar a month is hugely helpful in terms of helping us to keep the lights on, to keep the podcast up regular, all of that good stuff. And if you want to know what that goes towards, we list out our goals and give you some insight into that. Plus, when you become a patron, you get to know things before they happen. Not in like a precognition <laughs> kind of sense, but you get to learn about the things that we're doing behind the scenes before we release them to the public. So you can check that out, patreon.com slash the cast. And if you're following us on Twitter, you can uh, follow us a little bit, a little bit extra hard. By looking up that that hashtag, Fanthro. That's hashtag F-A-N-T-H-R-O. Oh, my God. All right, before I bring up one other thing I want to plug, I was just going to say, the best part about doing this on Twitch is I get to see everybody's reactions to things. Oh, it's it just it magnifies the experience. It's so yeah. good. Um, but the one important plug that I did not want to forget is the Race Against Time. On August 12th, we will be doing our third annual Race Against Time. What is that, you may ask? That is our annual 24-hour charity live stream where we raise funds for the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. We play through Chrono Trigger and get all of its various endings, try to do that in under 24 hours, do whatever it takes to raise money for the cause, whether that be push-ups, karaoke, whatever. We are there to entertain. You can check that out at raceagainsttime.io or you can follow us at twitch.tv slash theraceagainsttime and you'll be notified when we go live. If you are already on all of our other social media, you've probably seen a number of updates about it, so don't forget about it. And if you wanted to donate now, you can do that. Go to raceagainsttime.io slash donate. Mm-hmm. All proceeds go directly to the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. So that uh, leaves us only one place to go. We gotta get our boarding passes for the next flight? Yep. That's right. Are we taking the channel? Ooh. I thought Z was responsible Let's... for tickets. Why? Because I'm, I'm bad with logistics. <laughs> Why was he... All right. Yeah, we should take the channel. Okay, cool. Z or I can drive. I'll, I'll drive. You you get the conversation going, and I'll make sure we've got all of our passports in order. All right. Well, next week, 
We'll be uh, taking the short hop under the channel to go to France. And while we're there, we're going to talk about uh, famed comic character Arsène Lupin. So we move into uh, Famous Last Words. Famous Last Words. I'll go first. Mark. Okay. And I'm going to take take a trick out of Z's bag. Oh, no. And go make a it. statement. Oh, no. This is dangerous. <laughs> I mean, don't worry. I'm driving. Everything's fine. I think uh, I think Arsène Lupin is, is not very popular in France anymore. And is kind of like like an old-timey thing and, and uh, isn't relevant anymore. I'm definitely driving and not typing. <laughs> <laughs> the illusion is much better in audio. <laughs> if you're driving, perhaps I should uh, spit my famous last words. Spit them. I am actually just going to go with a straight-up question this time. Oh, man, this is... Uh... Why? Oh, why? Did uh, Japan think that there would be enough of a fandom for a, a at least Arsène Lupin-inspired anime with Lupin the Third. That show is great, and it's still going, by the way. Wow. Well, I mean, an incarnation of okay. Lupin the Third. Oof. Not, like, the same TV series. That would be impressive. All right. My famous last words, as I definitely don't drive us into a, a wall of the channel, are, why Sherlock Holmes? Mm. I mean, why did Sherlock Holmes succeed... Where Arsène Lupin failed. Arsène Lupin, gentleman thief. Good guy operating on the wrong side of the law. That seems really cool. He's Robin Hood. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. Robin Hood, except he's not English. Which <laughs> makes him better. Probably. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Why do we love Sherlock Holmes and his various incarnations and we have like two Arsène Lupins? And one is Lupin the Third, who is like his great-grandson or whatever we don't even have junior yeah not <laughs> unlike james <laughs> or sherlock junior being a gentleman thief uh, skips a generation i guess hmm. all right well as we approach the border as we approach <laughs> the border we better um i've heard they don't allow any photography or or videography or anything like that so we should probably turn the cameras off yep yeah all right but we'll speak to you next time Unfathomable. I was gonna say, bien, uh, no wait, bienvenue would have been good. Ah. I'll say it. Bien, bienvenue. Say Bonjour. it better. Bonjour. Bonjour. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bien sûr. <laughs> to uh, talk about the next part of our itinerary and our worldwide tour exploring fandoms across the globe well isn't isn't this a place where we do plugs yeah oh man we're in this land of twitch i feel constrained (laughs) (laughs) feel boxed in all right it it has more to do with the fact that my notes don't go in the same order as the show does Uh, yeah which i'll make a note to fix that for next time yeah, well, how do you know how do you know at what point to read it? Ah.
I don't know. Stop with your okay. questions. Your lies. Okay. All right.